the ILG podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the recent Supreme Court judgment in the Mencat Tomlinson Blake case. I'm David Ashley and I work for Mark Bates Limited Insurance. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self Directed Support Forum organising committee for over 15 years. Hi there, I'm Rachel Harkin and I'm Head of Employment at ILG, the Independent Living Group Limited. I'm passionate about ensuring individual employers receive the best possible care and support by any means possible. But for the purpose of our podcast conversations, I'm going to come at it from the legal perspective with a special focus on employment law. Right, let's get cracking. So when I started direct payments many moons ago, many, many moons ago, I um, quickly became aware of the distinction between sleeping nights and waking nights. Sleeping nights being where the PA was paid a flat rate um, and was probably only expected to be awake two or three times a night maximum, no more. Um, And the waking night being where the expectation was the PA would be awake more than three times a night, thus paid an hourly rate at or above the national minimum wage. Just as a a starter, I wonder, Rachel, could you explain kind of why this distinction existed um, from an employment law perspective? Okay, so prior to the national minimum wage being implemented in the UK, the government instructed the Low Pay Commission to provide an opinion on an appropriate level of minimum wage uh, and detail of how it should operate. Following completion of the report, the National Minimum Wage Act came into force and we saw the first set of regulations that provided the detail in 1999. Those regulations provided a definition of different types of work that would result in the need to pay national minimum wage and how it should be calculated. So we had things such as time work, salaried hours work, output work and unmeasured work. Within that, the regulations also stated which hours should not be included and they stated in the regs, in relation to a worker who by arrangement sleeps at or near a place of work, Time during the hours he is permitted to sleep shall only be treated as being time work when the worker is awake for the purpose of working. So the Low Pay Commission expected with that that employers would agree an allowance to offer suitable compensation for workers who weren't actively engaged on work but were required to stay at the employer's premises. So this is why it became common practice in social care settings to simply provide a flat rate of payment for sleepings where the worker was required to be there effectively on call but not actually engaged in activities through the night and that's what we refer to as a sleep-in as opposed to the obvious waking night where the individual is expected to be engaged on activities throughout. Right thank you that's a very thorough and detailed explanation which sums it up really really well so with what began to happen, um, personal assistance carers, we know, challenged this now. Um, and the situation did shift because local authorities were kind of looking at uh, quantifying care packages slightly differently. Um, there was, I, th- I guess, some concern about the, the sleeping shift, the sleeping rate. And we used, and we began to see national minimum wage being applied to every hour. Um, and this distinction was kind of being blurred. Um Carers say carers PA is challenging it. What was the basis of those challenges in legal terms, in terms of the case law? What was happening to to justify this shift? What would maybe summarise the main case law um, from the time? Okay, so 
We have to remember that when we're embarking on an analysis of case law, that it's the judiciary's primary job. It's their job to interpret Parliament's intention and apply it to the facts of cases that come before them. So once decisions are made in higher level courts or tribunals, those decisions actually create a precedent value, which then later cases can apply and follow. And that's what we know as being the common law. So going back to the beginning, I suppose, of the uncertainty arising, in 2002, the Court of Appeal gave us a judgment in the case of British Nursing Association and the Inland Revenue, which started this apparent confusion on how to interpret the the regulations. In this case, call handlers who were based at home and were required to take calls through the night when they came in, so otherwise they were able to sleep, in that case it was found that national minimum wage should apply throughout the night despite their ability to sleep when they weren't actually on a call itself. So it was determined that the work was actually the same as the work that they would have carried out had they been doing daytime hours and that was a a key issue in that particular case. That was the start of our uncertainty for the care industry where of course on-call workers are commonly needed throughout the night in case of emergency and we saw a slew of different cases coming through the 2000s right up to today's date. Um, The most applicable to care includes the case of McCartney from the Employment Appeals Tribunal 2006, where the worker was required to be on site in one of a number of flats in a residential setting and couldn't leave in case there was an emergency. McCartney applied the course of appeal precedent from British nursing that we've just talked about, and the worker was entitled to national minimum wage for each hour of the night because they had to be in situ. And there was a reference to the fact that the worker had to be there and wasn't merely contactable. Now, we did see a case that was distinguished in Ray and J.W. Lees and Co. in 2012. In that, the Employment Appeal Tribunals distinguished the facts from the original British nursing case. And here, the worker stayed in an apartment above a pub where they worked. And so, it was considered to be their home, despite the fact that this worker did also have another home elsewhere. And the distinction drew on the fact that the need to be in attendance differed from previous cases, as the duty was really quite distinct from what they otherwise would have been doing in their day-to-day activities. Going back to a care setting, the case of Esperon allowed for national minimum wage through sleep-in-night placing uh, emphasis on the employer's statutory obligation. So the fact that the employer had a legal obligation to have someone on site in this residential setting was really very relevant to the reason they said that national minimum wage applied in that particular case. So taking into account some of the principles that we've drawn, even just from that very small example of cases that we saw coming through, we were left with some degree of uncertainty until the case of Whittlestone and BJP Home Support Limited from the Employment Appeal Tribunal in 2014. Whittlestone offered us facts that are so relevant to domiciliary care work that it couldn't possibly be overlooked. This case involved a worker provided by a care agency to carry out sleeping shifts in the home of the person that they were supported, supporting. So very, very relevant to individual employers. In Whittlestone, the Employment Appeal Tribunal focused on the nature of the work and recognised that the mere presence of the worker was them engaged in the activities they were obliged to carry out in the caring capacity. 
They noted that the contract itself had been drafted in a time work basis, meaning that the contract essentially was measured by the hours of work that they completed and also that shifts had been agreed in advance. So emphasis was placed on the worker being at the employer's disposal through the night and a quote from the judgment, the fact that physical services were not called upon during the night were irrelevant. So that was really a very, very critical and key case that really brought about a very distinct change in our approach or what we believed at the time provided us with significant clarification on the issue. Right. Brilliant. So, yeah, I do remember Woodstone case and that's it, very interesting to note. So I think in layman's terms, people refer to it as a fish and chip law, if I remember rightly, this idea that if you couldn't just nip out fish and chips, you had to be there. You had to be on the premises. And and I know I've spoken to you over the years and I know that we, I've sort of certain things that have stuck with me, like you can't just leave the premises, turn off your mobile phone. You, you know, you do have to be there by pain of discipline. And I remember, you know, coming to terms with that concept and, and you know, the way you've just explained it is fantastic. It, it's it. it it's very, it's very clear. Um, certainly, the, the concept is clear that you know if you have to be somewhere, surely you're working. Surely that should count as time work if you're looking at the national minimum wage. And I know that, that you know after the 2014 Woodstone judgment, we did see pretty much the end of this distinction. Everything was a waking night. Whatever you were being asked to do, if you had to be there, you were you were working, um, and that was certainly the direction of travel. So much so that we had the HMRC introduced something called the social care compliance scheme and it was kind of like the logical result was like well okay if this is all work time then actually if i'm a carer or a pa i'm going to say well i've been doing this for the last however many years i'd quite like to be um compensated for the fact that i've been perhaps underpaid and and it was so clear as i say the hmrc introduced this scheme that as i remember they encouraged employers to sign up to to uh mitigate the risk of being fined and reduce that risk and to enable them to support employers quantify how much they might owe owe to staff for back pay claims. So it was it very much felt at the time like that, that position was fixed. And you know, for again from a layman non-legal perspective, you know, it it even now thinking back, it's 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 quite hard to believe that you would have such a massive kind of statement of intent from a you know a government the HMRC effectively, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs saying, okay, we're going to introduce this scheme. It didn't feel like we were going to have a a turnaround, a turnaround felt unlikely, um, but it did turn around again, as we know. Two thousand. I laugh because it's just been such a roller coaster, hasn't it? Two thousand eighteen, nineteen. What what happened? Because maybe if you wouldn't mind explaining it again in legal terms, just give us a quick explanation of what happened in two thousand eighteen. Okay, so we're talking July 2018. A judgment was handed down by the Court of Appeal. So very, very high precedent value. We're talking, you know, one of the higher courts of the land. They heard the appeals in the cases of Shannon and also Tomlinson Blake. The Court of Appeal determined that national minimum wage wasn't available for sleeping shifts after all. So it really turned the previous Whittlestone case on its head. Despite um, the backdrop of the effect that Whittlestone had had on the care sector and, and the significant back pay claims that you've just discussed, uh, having already been processed, the Court of Appeal provided total turnaround and applied what was the strict provision of the national minimum wage regulations, which were codified and introduced again in 
2015. So in section 32.2, we now have a provision that says hours when a worker is available only includes hours when the worker is awake for the purposes of working, even if a worker by arrangement sleeps at or near a place of work and the employer provides suitable facilities for sleeping. So that's what the Court of Appeal did. They applied what they considered to be Parliament's intention uh, that was clear and set out, obviously, in the regulations. Right. Okay. So there you go. Um, and this and this has been a steep learning curve over the years for me, and I found it fascinating. And what I guess it leaves us never, you know, never be too certain, I guess, of, of where you think you are. And if there is a court, a case going to the court, don't be too, so sure that you, you might you might know what the outcome is. I mean, it's certainly fascinating to me. I think I remember at the time we had some guidance from the LGA, Local Government Association, two local authorities as a result of the Court of Appeal decision. Um and it and it effectively expressed caution. So it and it and it said, you know, you might you this is the current position on the law. I remember that 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 term stuck with me. This is the current uh interpretation of law. We may still yet have a final interpretation of the law. Um and that referred of course to there being a, a, an appeal to the Supreme Court which we know Unison did take on behalf of Thomas and uh, Blake and I guess we then had to wait for that appeal to um, be granted and then of course for the for the for the for a date to be set for the hearing which we know happened um, later on I think in February 2020 but so we had we had a couple of things happen so the local government association advising local authorities, to be um, ex- expressing caution. Don't don't do don't assume this is the final interpretation of the law. It may yet change. You may yet find there are back pay claims. So just hold fire until we get this outcome. So we're all effectively on hold. And then the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Stat- Strategy, or BEIS, um, changed their guidance in October 2019 to say sleeping shifts do not attract a national minimum wage. So we had this complete turnaround from where we were, the social care compliance scheme government now saying sleeping shifts do not attract national minimum wage and we had the lga reminding local authorities just hold fire let's see what the supreme court make of this and then we had this kind of weird situation where we're just in limbo a bit and i guess from an advisor i'm sure you had lots of questions about it for the years i know we talked about it over the last couple of years and and there isn't a meeting i attend where somebody generally doesn't ask me what about the supreme court judgment and now where are we now so where did we get to if you want to summarise. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was quite a waiting game there for a while. So Unison, and, and we need to remember that they're a very significant union representing many, many, many care workers. It's a it's a major, major deal, this. We had a massive potential for back pay claims. And on the other hand, we also had care workers who perhaps would be underrepresented and and not achieving enough people, perhaps who were not earning as much as they would like uh, and yet having to be on site. So Union have launched the appeal from the Court of Appeal. It, It gets permission to go up to the Supreme Court in February 2019. This was lodged. The case was actually heard in February 2020. So we've had quite a waiting game because, of course, the judgment has only just and finally been handed down on Friday, the 19th of March 2021. So we had to wait a good 13 months with perhaps a tad uncertainty, being not being clear on which way it was going to go. We were all desperately waiting for the outcome. 
So the judgment of the Supreme Court, which we must remember is the highest court in the land now, there is nothing beyond that. They essentially affirmed the Court of Appeals decision. Remembering that it is the judiciary's role to interpret the will of Parliament, the judgment noted that prior to introducing the original regulations, the government were actually under an obligation to implement the recommendations from the Low Pay Commission report, unless they applied to Parliament with good reason to make changes and, and go away from what the Low Pay Commission report had said. That they didn't do. So the Supreme Court have referenced that in the judgment um, and recommended that, um, who essentially recommended that a minimum hourly wage wasn't necessary for a worker who was sleeping uh, and that a simple expense agreement with the worker would be sufficient. So they've looked at what preceded the act being implemented, what preceded the regulations being implemented, and that has really carried a lot of weight in their interpretation of Parliament's intention. Brilliant. So they've been thorough, but as we might expect, for given that we had a three-year wait, and that's not a criticism, I appreciate it. We're <laughs> very, very hard, but we, they have been thorough, which is good. We are just going to take a brief pause there. I hope you're enjoying this second ILG podcast, and please remember to join the ILG membership for more great content, newsletters, and information. Like and subscribe right now. So, Back to the conversation, and in this second part, David and Rachel discuss the pros and cons of the Supreme Court judgment. So let's dive in a little and have a look at the pros and cons of the Supreme Court's judgment. David, how has this been received, and what cons are there from a social care perspective? Yeah, good question. I think ultimately, um, probably, I would, I think, disappointment, if I'm honest. I think there was a hope that we would get a judgment that would. Uh, contribute to forcing uh, better pay for PAs. So what I think it's done is highlighted probably that there is some some sector funding problems and issues and, and kind of brought that to the fore. The, the system's already underfunded. Um, I don't think this will help. And I think there's a general sense of disappointment around that. I think um, Unison, of course, you mentioned before that they were backing this appeal. Um, they have said openly the ruling is a major disappointment. Um but also that it increases pressure on government to bring forward much-needed reform of the crisis-ridden sector, as they describe it. So quite emotive language from Unison. You would expect that, but um, they're obviously confident enough um, to, to be kind of to post that on their website and to and to take that that view. Um, so sector problems with the funding, as say Unison pushing and others pushing, Mencap as well were part of the case pushing for uh, reform uh, to make sure that PAs and carers are paid appropriately and i think recruitment i think finally is an issue and there is some concern that you know it's already difficult to recruit pas and carers um will this have a positive impact on your ability to find good pas probably not because it means ultimately less uh less wages for them if they're asked to stay overnight and certainly more uncertainty so i'd say um the recruitment issue is a big one um absolutely i mean i don't know if you've had any any comment, any views on that or anything that's jumped out at you? Yes, I have to agree with you. In fact, actually, recently I had a call from a lady who was concerned about recruitment. She was, you know, had a had a reasonable care package in place and was concerned that she couldn't compete with the agencies. The amount that she was getting paid per hour on a direct payment just was not enough to entice good staff. 
Yeah, not great. Not great. So I think generally then, yeah, the cons uh, or the response out there has been um, one of concern, one of concern in an already uh, struggling sector, worried about where the funding is going to come from. So not a useful judgment from that perspective. But th- there are some pros, I'm sure. I mean, do, let's talk about those. Um, how, do, how do you see those, Rachel? Well, the obvious one is the no back pay claims no back pay claims that were estimated to be worth something like 400 million potentially so of course not having to go through that is absolutely vital for sector finances it means that we don't run the risk of the care sector folding altogether that has got to be the significant benefit to this um, because as much as the, in an ideal world we would want to see all care workers provided with a, a, a great rate of pay the reality is there is little funding available. It, you know, it can't be paid what, what isn't there. So that's the big one. From a legal point of view, clarity. We finally have a removal of doubt about budgets. We know that budgets moving forward can be set with a standard sleeping rate. We don't have to worry about the potential for back pay claims. We don't have to worry about national minimum wage for every hour that that individual is asleep. So, of course, it gives us that absolute certainty um, that we can really bank on. That's that's a major benefit. Okay, we are going to take another quick break in the conversation to mention the Mark Bates Limited Home Employment Insurance. Mark Bates Limited have partnered with the ILG to provide a free membership to all Deluxe policyholders. It's thanks to this partnership that we can continue to bring you this content and much more in the future. If you would like to know more about the MBL product range, please visit the website on www.markbateslimited.com. Let's get back to the final part of the podcast where David and Rachel discuss the practical steps that need to be taken or considered should funders look to change budgets following the Supreme court ruling okay we've had a look at the judgment we've had a look at the pros and cons now let's have a look at the impact and practicalities we expect some funding bodies will reduce budgets as a result of this judgment we know individual employers many individual employers are paying the national minimum wage for every hour their pa attends uh, work overnight and that that will have to change in some circumstances how do we deal with this from an advice perspective Rachel, if ILG support uh, receive inquiries from individual employers in this situation, perhaps their funding body has has advised that their budget will be reduced. Um, what are the implications for them? What advice would you give? Okay, well, first of all, I think it's really important to recognise that some of these workers are going to be under expressly agreed contractual terms that gives them the right to national minimum wage for the sleep-in shifts. And and even if there isn't an express agreement, some of them may have been working under this method for so long that there is actually an implied condition in the contract of employment and in that working arrangement. So we need to recognise that there could well be legally binding obligations between the employer and the employee. So perhaps the first step would be to have a look to see if there is an express contractual clause that gives the employer the right to make certain changes. The way in which any clause would be drafted is very relevant to uh, whether or not we can utilise that to make changes to pay. It may be if there isn't a contractual clause giving us that kind of freedom, then we would 
perhaps look to go into consultation with the employee, explaining the reasons why, you know, there are restrictions on the budget um, that are planned and frankly the employer can't avoid and so we go into consultation to look to get an agreement with the employee to make changes to their terms and I suppose the final option would be the potential for what we call an SOSR dismissal some other substantial reason we might well look to terminate the original contract and reinstate the worker on the new terms now, I want to stress how important it is that any employer takes advice before taking this step, because employees who have completed two years service have got the right to bring a case of unfair dismissal. And effectively, in terminating that original contract, that's what we're doing. We're, we're dismissing the employee and reinstating them on new terms. So it isn't without risk. An employer must take advice. So those are perhaps some of the practical issues that we would look at as to how we can go about making changes. In terms of risk, which must be highlighted, if decisions are made very, very quickly without having considered those steps that I've just talked about and the budget is cut, pay is reduced immediately, the, the very distinct risk here is that the employer may well be facing an unlawful deduction from wages claim, something that perhaps may not be defendable. So be wary, be on your guard. It's important that the right process is followed before we start making cuts. In addition to that, I would say that, and certainly whenever we're talking about terminating an original contract, it is essential that an employer follows a fair process, that we recognise the duty of trust and confidence that exists between employer and employee, and that we act fairly when we're approaching something that is so important as pay. We act fairly and we give them time to consider. Now, it may well be that without that time, without the careful approach and management of the change, employees might choose to, to leave, frankly, and may say, we're not having this, can't cope without that money walk out the door and there is a risk then of constructive unfair dismissals coming. Now, I'd just like to say to any funding bodies, anybody who is involved in setting budgets who might be listening to this, please just recognise the challenge for employers in making such changes and give them time to handle it correctly without exposing them to a risk of legal disputes that ultimately may not be defendable. The more time they can give, the more they are advised to come and speak to us to take proper guidance, we should hopefully be able to uh, remedy any change to budgets quite nicely. Great. Thanks, Rachel. So quite a lot potentially to do for our individual employers who have this change to make um, and a lot for funding bodies to consider before making those changes. Um, and we hope um, and we do advise you know people to get in touch, use, use ILG support, speak to us before you make those changes. Um, so in terms of new packages then, are we back to square one? So the old distinction we described earlier between a waking night paid hourly at the national minimum wage or a flat rate shift, um, you know, that does that pays covers the national wage for the hours somebody's awake, but for the period of time they're there, you know, is 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 uh, less than national minimum wage for every hour. Are we back to that distinction? Is that is that does this judgment take us full circle? Yes, I believe it does. Um, certainly we can see that where it is a genuine sleeping shift, that a simple flat rate would be sufficient. There is no need to pay for every hour that passes. 
so what I would be a little cautious of, something I, I'm prepping for already, is this concern that maybe to keep budgets tight, we might well be trying to shoehorn what should be a waking night into a sleeping night. If we've got awareness that actually the person receiving support is going to need a lot of a lot of wake ups, a lot of attention through the night. My concern is that not just are we not applying national minimum wage correctly, but also um, perhaps we're not necessarily taking into account the employee's health and safety. Employers remain responsible for ensuring that employees are kept safe. There are also working time regulations provisions that tackle um, certain rights for night workers. So if we just simply say, well, you're not a night worker because you're not actively engaged on working activities, that's going to be a concern as well. So I would just ask people to act with caution and make sure that they are appropriately judging whether or not it should be a waking or a sleeping night. So this is an interesting point for me, actually, David. When I first started advising individual employers, I quickly learned that there seemed to be an industry standard of three get-ups, meant, or, or up to three get-ups, meant that it was a sleep-in night, and anything beyond that was a waking night. Um, and then perhaps they might just pay a flat rate, something in the region of £30 for that night. My understanding is that there isn't anything expressly set out in law that determines that. So can you give me an idea what you believe the logic behind that principle is? Right. Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, similarly, it was something that kind of I was I was taught, passed down to me, as it were, that um, kind of always existed. Um, and I think I think it's... I think there is logic to it. I think if somebody's overnight, if they are woken up to do something to, to support somebody, that might take 10 minutes. It might take 35 minutes. That's one period where you're woken up. And I think you would consider that to be uh, an hour's work because you're working. So you'll round it up to an hour. You'll make sure they get the national minimum wage for that hour's work. It may, as I say, it may only be 10 minutes. It may be 30 minutes. It may be an hour. Um, if they're woken again, the same principle applies. So if we say they're woken three three times up, they're woken up three times in the night. Um, we need to ensure um, that that flat rate covers at least the national minimum wage times three. So eight pounds seventy two times three. Quick maths in my head: twenty six pounds sixteen. <laughs> so we know that the flat rate has to cover has to cover that figure. To, to ensure that that person on a sleep-in isn't being underpaid according to national wage. I think that's the logic behind flat rates and how, how that works. In terms of wider distinction between three times up in the night and more, and, and it kind of once you're up more than three times, it's a waking night, it's difficult to say. I, I, my, my, my kind of hunch is that it's a kind of common sense approach. As you've described, it's not rooted in law. So I guess it's this idea that if you are up three or more times a night, if that's where we draw the line, you're more likely to be awake than you are asleep. So I think probably in terms of what's fair, and if we think back to PAs and carers who were saying, hang on a minute, this has to be work, and the context of the regs sitting behind it, I suspect it was a common sense approach that fitted well and was applied universally and probably was the best way uh, moving forward. But it does remind us, doesn't it, I think, that, um, you know, PAs are and carers are a kind of unrepresented group. They are low paid. They do have to be there 
overnight. They do have to be there, whether we call it a waking night or a sleeping night. They can't leave the premises. And just because the regulations, as we've described and you've, you've explained really clearly through this podcast, just because those regs don't call this work, um, many people feel very strongly that, of course, it is work. And it's an interesting argument, isn't it? Um, so I think, you know, that just a reminder that we know, that, as you said, the judiciary is not going to give us the, the, the answer here. People are going to be campaigning for better pay for PAs and carers. We know Unison are on the charge and others are going to be kind of making that case. So we know where the fault line sits now. Um, in terms of legislation, Rachel, what or that campaigning, where should it focus? What could what could we see? What would be, you know, where where might this change come from, if not the judiciary? Okay, well, yeah, as you rightly say, we've got certainty from the judiciary. We know that their interpretation of the regulations as they stand. So if there is to be a change from this point onwards, Parliament will need to legislate for it. Um, It may well be that the government in, in time call for further review, maybe call for another inquiry, perhaps even further reference to the Low Pay Commission. But whatever the case, we can be certain that Parliament should intervene before we see changes to the law. Right. OK, that'll be exciting. So that'll be another podcast, I'm sure, or uh, maybe more, maybe two. <laughs> Who knows? So we'll stay and stop on top of any developments and we'll continue to share these via our newsletters and our advice notes. Um, ILG support are keen to be, uh, you know, a really useful source of information to you and our policyholders. And we'll continue to monitor this very, very closely. So, Rachel, thank you very much. Uh, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Well, thank you for listening to our second Independent Living Group podcast. Please join us again for the next episode where David and Rachel will be talking about employment status and viewer judgment. Until then, stay safe, stay well and smile. Take care now. Bye-bye. The content of this podcast is for general guidance only. With specific cases, always seek legal advice.